Hello, friends, and welcome to Sterile Field Guide, a podcast dedicated to medical student general surgical education. I'm Alex, and I'll be your guide. Hello, friends, and welcome back to another episode of Sterile Field Guide. We are going to start in this episode a little series, a little journey on the pancreas, starting out with pancreatitis. So in this episode, we are going to talk about acute pancreatitis, including etiologies, treatment, recognition, management, those sorts of things. And then if we have time, we might talk about different complications that you can get from pancreatitis. I do have a lot of notes for this episode, so I imagine, I suspect that that will be a part two episode where we talk about chronic pancreatitis and then complications from pancreatitis and their management maybe in a joint episode. But I feel like pancreatitis is one of those bread and butter things that you should be able to recognize, know how to treat regardless of what specialty you are going into. And so we are going to start with a mnemonic that a lot of people are likely familiar with. And this is thank you Onking for, for truly making this go down in history. But the mnemonic that I learned for acute pancreatitis is I get smashed. And in addition to that is I get PP smashed. And I apologize that that is the mnemonic I'm about to teach you. But for all of these words, we're going to go into a little bit more detail on a lot of these. But for the mnemonic, for you to remember for your boards exams and also for completing your Anki at a quick rate. So I get PP smash, I is for idiopathic, G is for gallstones, E for ethanol, T for trauma, P is for posterior duodenal ulcer rupture, the other P is for pancreas divisum, S for steroids, M for mumps, A for autoimmune disease, S for scorpion sting, H for hypercalcemia or hypertriglyceridemia or chylomicronemia, E for ERCP, and D for drugs such as sulfa drugs, protease inhibitors, etc. So when we think about pancreatitis, I just told you a lot of the etiologies, and unfortunately that's not an exhaustive list, but um, when we think about the etiology of acute pancreatitis, the two most common causes are going to be gallstone and then alcohol use. Gallstone pancreatitis is increasing in incidence due to the increasing incidence of obesity. These things are associated with each other, and so acute pancreatitis, secondary to gallstones, which is the number one cause of pancreatitis, at least in the United States is increasing in incidence. So this is something that everybody needs to know, really just driving home that point. But also it's important to recognize acute pancreatitis and know how to treat it because the mortality rate associated with acute pancreatitis is about 5%. And the mortality is related to systemic inflammatory response syndrome or organ failure. And these Mortality related to SIRS or organ failure typically happens within the first two weeks, and then mortality after the first two weeks is going to be related to sepsis and other complications, which we will probably cover in the next episode. So diving in a little bit deeper to some of the etiologies, we talked about the mnemonic. So diving in a little bit deeper to gallstones, this is going to be the most common cause of acute pancreatitis, as I mentioned, but it's important to note that not everybody with gallstones gallstones gets pancreatitis. So a lot of people have gallstones. You're probably aware of this. And a lot of people do not know that they have gallstones. So it's estimated that about four to 7% of patients who have gallstones will get pancreatitis at some point or another. But I feel like this is very difficult to estimate given that so many people probably have undiagnosed, if you will, 
gallstones. So grain of salt, not everyone who has gallstones is going to get pancreatitis, but when you do get pancreatitis from gallstones, it's usually from obstruction of the ampulla during the passage of a gallstone. And this can cause one, number one, obstruction, which is going to not allow for pancreatic enzymes to exit the pancreas, which is going to cause this inflammation and pancreatitis. But you can also have periampullary edema, um, secondary to the passage of this gallstone. And this can, again, cause a little bit of an obstruction to not allow for those enzymes to exit in a timely manner from the pancreas, which can lead to pancreatitis. The second most common cause is going to be alcohol pancreatitis or ethanol pancreatitis. This occurs in about 10% of patients with chronic alcohol use. And the pathophysiology of alcohol or ethanol pancreatitis is that alcohol can cause increased viscosity of pancreatic secretions, which is in a sense going to slow the transit of those pancreatic enzymes and allow for inflammation within the duct. So having any obstruction, I think main point coming in really quickly is that obstruction of the duct is going to lead to pancreatitis and alcohol contributes to that by causing increased viscosity of pancreatic secretions. Something interesting is that smoking is associated with pancreatitis and it increases the risk of acute and chronic pancreatitis in a dose-dependent relationship. So the pack year history of your patient is really important when trying to sort of understand their risk or if their smoking is contributing to their pancreatitis. A little bit more about smoking and pancreatitis. There is a paper from 2015 talking about the impact of nicotine on the pancreas, and this suggests that nicotine damages the acinar cells and this paper quote says nicotine induces damage through signal transduction pathways in pancreatic acinar cells, leading to elevated levels of intracellular calcium release and or impaired pancreatic blood flow. Moreover, nicotine also alters gene expression in the exocrine pancreas, which affects the ratio of trypsinogen to its endogenous inhibitor. So there is actually a lot of data on smoking and pancreatitis. So definitely take a peek at that if you are curious, but Cigarette smoking and nicotine have a direct impact on pancreas, which is very, very interesting. That one was not in the mnemonic, but something to recognize. Hypertriglyceridemia is another one that we talk about, and this often happens with serum triglyceridemia over 1,000 milligrams per deciliter. So this is about the level where patient or where Providers start to be worried about acute pancreatitis, um, but lower levels can cause this. And if you remember back in our anesthesia episodes, we talked about propofol being a cause of potentially pancreatitis due to hypertriglyceridemia. And this is because propofol is in a fat emulsion, and that is how that drug is administered. So this is something that we can do to patients in the hospital. So always be, if patients have primary or secondary disorders of fat metabolism, so like an inherited disorder would be primary, secondary is going to be things like obesity, diabetes, hypothyroidism, pregnancy, estrogen, tamoxifen, beta blockers, etc. Those can lead to serum hypertriglyceridemia. But things that we do to patients can also lead to serum triglyceridemia, such as a long-term propofol infusion. So it's good to be thinking about this when you have a patient who has pancreatitis symptoms, or if you're doing anything that can lead to pancreatitis. So if you're giving someone a propofol infusion, you should be checking triglycerides. 
over a regular interval. <laughs> the next one that we'll talk about is ERCP. ERCP stands for endoscopic retrograde cholangiopancreatography or ERCP, which is much easier. And this is when you have an endoscopy. So there's a tube down your esophagus and you are able to look at the anatomy of the ampulla um, and the bile ducts and the pancreatic ducts. And so instrumentation of the pancreatic duct and irritation of the ampulla can lead to pancreatitis, but it depends on what kind of ERCP you're doing as well as the experience of the endoscopist, um, what your rates of pancreatitis secondary to, to ERCP are. So don't be afraid necessarily of an ERCP if it's a necessary procedure for a patient. Just know that pancreatitis is a risk. The different rates, depending on what's happening, um, the different things that you can do, there are diagnostic and therapeutic ERCP. So diagnostic is going to have a lower risk because you're just taking a peek. And then therapeutic, you're going to do something down there that requires a little bit of extra instrumentation or manipulation of the tissue. And so you have a higher rate of pancreatitis with a therapeutic ERCP versus diagnostic. There are some genetic risks for pancreatitis. One that I saw that I think we probably learned about at some point in medical school that I forgot about and then relearned when I had a patient. I feel like a lot of clinical medicine is being like, oh my gosh, that thing I read in a textbook is actually real. That's wild. So PRSS1 gene, um, you can have a gain of function of this gene and patients will have an autosomal dominant pancreatitis. This patient that we operated on was a young patient who had several years and years and years of recurrent acute pancreatitis. She eventually got diabetes from this, was a young person, and we did a total pancreatectomy due to just horrible quality of life due to this pancreatitis. So PRSS1 gain of function is real and leads to pancreatitis, and you may encounter this as a surgical problem or something that you have to manage sort of over and over again. So if you have patients who are young, um, who have acute pancreatitis and don't really have other risk factors, definitely take a peek at their genetics because that is real. Um, cystic fibrosis is associated with pancreatitis as well, and those are some of the big genetic risks for pancreatitis. Some medications that are associated with pancreatitis, we so some medications, there's a big list and there's a lot of different ways that medications can cause injury to the pancreas, such as immunologic reactions, direct toxic effect, accumulation of toxic metabolites, ischemia, thrombosis, or anything that kind of increases the viscosity of the pancreatic juices like alcohol does, like we mentioned already. So some of these drugs are going to be like sulfonamides, diuretics, valproic acid, pentamidine, tetracyclines, azathioprine, estrogen, alcohol, etc. There's a long, long list of medications and you can do sort of like specific research on how these medications cause injury to the pancreas. I just read a little list of them that kind of covers all of the mechanisms that I just mentioned. I don't know that it's necessarily useful for me to to read off a list and match it with the type of injury that it causes to the pancreas. But if you're curious, just know that there are different ways that the pancreas can be injured. And these medications can do a number of those things like sulfonamides is in a couple of categories. So take a peek at that if you are curious if a medication is leading to pancreatitis picture. 
Um, pancreatic ductal injury, such as trauma, I think this is going to be the trauma thing from the mnemonic. So you can have acute ductal rupture and pancreatic ascites with trauma. This can cause scarring and stricture of the pancreatic duct, which then you can have obstructive pancreatitis. So trauma can definitely cause pancreatitis. Um, we, again, some something that I ran into is a patient who had a gunshot wound to the abdomen and it went through the head of the pancreas. And we were thinking about maybe having to do a trauma whipple, which I didn't know was a real thing that you could do for a patient, but trauma whipples are real. So trauma can happen and can cause pancreatitis, but can also necessitate pancreatic surgery, which I did not, I guess I should have expected it, but it was unexpected to me (laughs) for some reason. Other things like biliary obstruction from other things than gallstones, so like ascariasis, periampulary diverticula, or tumors around the pancreatic duct or periampulary space can cause an obstruction of the pancreatic duct and these enzymes to build up. Autoimmune pancreatitis is real, and I have seen this clinically as well. Hypercalcemia can lead to pancreatitis, and this may, the the mechanism that is proposed for for this is that there's like a deposition of calcium within the pancreatic duct and then this calcium activates trypsinogen and so that is the mechanism that is proposed for pancreatitis due to hypercalcemia. Different infections such as mumps, hepatitis B, CMV, varicella, herpes, HIV, mycoplasma, legionella, leptospira, salmonella, aspergillus, toxoplasma, cryptosporidium, and ascariasis can be associated with pancreatitis. That is a long list and I'm sure it's not exhaustive. So if a patient has some sort of infection, I would be suspicious if their belly started to her in a way that maybe rang a bell for pancreatitis that that could be related. So don't cross that off your list when patients have a bellyache, when they have like a severe bellyache, I would say, um, when they may have an infection. Um, scorpions on the mnemonic, this is going to be like scorpions, but it also includes some spiders and the Gila monster. I think that's how you say that. And this causes pancreatitis due to cholinergic stimulation, and this is the proposed mechanism by which scorpions, spiders, and Gila monsters can cause pancreatitis. Vascular disease. Pancreatic ischemia is pretty rare from atherosclerosis, but this can happen. It can happen, but it's a little bit more common to happen in diseases that cause vasculitis like SLE or polyarteritis nodosa. You can also get this from an atheroembolism. Intraoperative hypotension can cause pancreatic ischemia. Pancreatic vasospasm can also contribute contribute to vascular disease that results in pancreatitis. Anatomic variants can also contribute to pancreatitis, such as biliary cysts, pancreaticobiliary malunion, annular pancreas, um, which can cause a mechanical obstruction. And then apparently pancreatitis divisum, which even though is on the mnemonic, is a little bit controversial on if it causes pancreatitis or not, but I think this is included in a lot of med school curriculum. Maybe keep it on your differential for now. And the last etiology that we will talk about extremely briefly is idiopathic. So pancreatitis can happen for a reason that we are unaware of, and those are the etiologies of pancreatitis that we are going to cover together. So now we're going to move into workup. And so this is going to talk about specific labs that you 
ought to probably get on patients depending on your suspicion for the etiology of their pancreatitis. So for instance, a lot of these labs may contribute to pancreatitis given your differential. So things like triglycerides, we know hypertriglyceridemia can lead to pancreatitis. Serum calcium, again, hypercalcemia can lead to pancreatitis. So for liver enzymes, you can get an AST, ALT, and ALKFOS, but what they have found, which was different from what I expected, was that an ALT greater than 150 has a positive predictive value of 95% for predicting Galston pancreatitis in the appropriate clinical context, whereas alkaline phosphatase, which you would associate with the biliary tree, is actually not as helpful for diagnosis. So ALT is more helpful than ALKFOS for liver enzymes. You can also do genetic testing if you are concerned that this patient is young and doesn't really have a clear-cut reason for pancreatitis and those genes that we talked about, two of the big ones that we talked about, obviously not limited to these two, but PRSS1 and the cystic fibrosis CFTR gene. You can test for IgG4 if you're concerned for autoimmune pancreatitis. Again, this is a very real diagnosis in the clinical context that I saw it. This was a poor poor baby who was unable to communicate, just like having a really bad time. And we were not able to identify like why her stomach hurt, but her parents were adamant that she had a bellyache because they understood her communication, her nonverbal communication, and we did not. And so it took a while before we got autoimmune pancreatitis labs. And I think somebody got it, quote unquote, just to check and it ended up being positive. So don't don't discount autoimmune pancreatitis as something on your differential, especially if you're getting stuck and, and patients have a clinical picture that could be pancreatitis. Other things that you can do are amylase and lipase. And remember that this is helpful for diagnosis, but you don't need to do serial amylase or lipases, meaning that you would get multiple of them and trend them because it does not predict di- disease severity to follow. So it's kind of a waste of, waste of their blood, waste of healthcare dollars. It can be helpful for diagnosis. Um, but you definitely don't need to trend it. A diagnostic amylase level for pancreatitis is three times the upper limit of normal based on your institution's upper limit of normal. Other things you can do as far as imaging is concerned, you can do an abdominal ultrasound to look for cholelithiasis. You can look for extrahepatic biliary tract obstruction as well. Other imaging things you can do, you can do an MRCP and you can also do an endoscopic ultrasound to evaluate anatomy. One thing to mention is that if a patient presents, and typically the presentation for acute pancreatitis, which we haven't mentioned yet, which I feel like most people know, which is maybe why I skipped over it, but let's talk about it very quickly. So so the presentation for pancreatitis, which we haven't quite mentioned yet, typically what you're going to hear in the textbook or in a test question is that patients are going to have severe abdominal pain that may radiate to their back. Other things that may be associated with pancreatitis are nausea, vomiting, fever, rapid heart rate, or tachycardia. Um, Patients can be tachypneic. They can have changes in their hemodynamics, and those are some things to be thinking about when you are thinking about pancreatitis on your differential. And something to keep in mind is that acute pancreatitis in a patient under 40 years old who has had associated unexplained weight loss, new onset diabetes, or has a family history of pancreatic cancer, you should put pancreatic cancer on your differential because it can present as pancreatitis 
to begin with. Now that we have done a little bit of workup of pancreatitis, we can talk about some classification details of pancreatitis. The first thing I'll mention is the Atlanta classification, which classifies pancreatitis into interstitial edematous pancreatitis or necrotizing acute pancreatitis. So interstitial edematous pancreatitis is going to be inflammation of the pancreas without necrosis and necrotizing acute pancreatitis is going to be inflammation with necrosis. And this necrosis this necrosis can be pancreatic or peripancreatic. In addition to interstitial edematous or necrotizing, pancreatitis can be mild, moderate, or severe. Mild pancreatitis is classified by the absence of organ failure or local or systemic complications. Moderately severe pancreatitis involves no organ failure, or you can have transient organ failure that lasts less than 48 hours and you can have local complications. Severe acute pancreatitis consists of persistent organ failure greater than 48 hours, and you can quantify organ failure with a modified Marshall scoring system, as well as the SIRS criteria, which includes temperature, tachycardia, tachypnea, leukocytosis greater than 12,000. Now, something that you'll hear about most likely is the Ranson criteria. So we're going to talk about the Ranson criteria and then talk about why maybe it's not used as much clinically. But something that you'll probably hear about in your medical training is the Ranson criteria. And this is a tool that has been used to help predict the severity and mortality of acute pancreatitis. So it involves... 11 different values being gathered. Five of these are gathered on admission and six of them are gathered at 48 hours after admission. So you can't complete the scoring system until the patient has been admitted for two days. There's a maximum score of 11 and the modified criteria, which is looking for gallstone pancreatitis has a max score of 10. You don't have to remember this, but I'm going to go through the different values that you would gather for the ransom and criteria starting with the normal version where there's 11. So on admission, you're going to note their age. So age greater than 55 gets you a point. White blood cells greater than 16,000 gets you a point. A glucose greater than 200 is a point. An AST greater than 250 is a point. And then an LDH greater than 350 or lactate dehydrogenase greater than 350 gets you a point. On admission and then at 48 hours you're gonna look at calcium and so calcium less than 8 a hematocrit fall greater than 10% PaO2 less than 60 millimeters of mercury BUN increased by 5 milligrams per deciliter despite IV hydration base deficit greater than 4 or sequestration of fluids greater than 6 liters all of those things get you a point the modified criteria for gallstone pancreatitis on admission you'll get four values so age greater than 70 glucose greater than 220 ast greater than 250 ldh greater than 400 a little bit different from the regular ransom criteria and then at 48 hours pretty much the same so calcium less than 8 hematocrit fall greater than 10% BUN increased by two, base deficit greater than five, and more than four liters of sequestration of fluid. So those things are a little bit different, but fairly similar. And this tool has been used to predict mortality. So based on the score that you have at 48 hours, from zero to two points, you have up to 3% mortality, three to four points, 15% mortality, five to six points, 40% mortality, and seven to 11 is nearly 100% mortality. 
So the reason I mention this is because this was really important for me to know for like passing my simulations and my exams, but in the clinical setting, there was some data that came out in 2016 that suggested that the Apache 2 score or the BICEP scores are actually better at predicting mortality than the Ranson criteria are. So just be aware of that. And the Apache 2 criteria goes over things pretty similar to SIRS criteria, but it is age, temperature, mean arterial pressure, pH, heart rate, respiratory rate, sodium, potassium, and creatinine. If they're in acute renal failure, what their hematocrit is, what their white blood cell count is, their Glasgow coma scale, and their FiO2. And that is going to be the Apache 2 score. And that helps to estimate ICU mortality in general and is helpful for estimating mortality related to pancreatitis. The BICEP score is specifically for pancreatitis mortality, and this takes into account the BUN, impaired mental status, greater than two SIRS criteria, age greater than 60, and if they have a pleural effusion. Okay, all that to say now we have estimated the severity of the pancreatitis and classified it as either interstitial edematous or necrotizing. So now we will go into the treatment of pancreatitis, which is fairly simple to begin with as long as it's not complicated, but we'll talk about complications in the next episode because we were approaching 30 minutes of raw recording time, which is a lot for me to edit. So um, for treatment, the initial treatment is going to be supportive care and three components of supportive care that you should be aware of are fluid resuscitation, pain control, and nutritional support. So for fluid replacement, this is usually going to be IV dehydration. And the reason this is so important is that patients can have pretty extensive third spacing secondary to inflammation. There's going to be increased permeability of vasculature. They can have nausea and vomiting, poor PO intake, and all of these things play a role in contributing to hypovolemia. And so this can be bad for patients trying to maintain their blood pressure, but it can also lead to hemoconcentrated blood. And in some studies, persistent hemoconcentration greater than 24 hours is associated with necrotizing pancreatitis, which is where we run into some of our scarier complications. So making sure that patients have fluid on board and can maintain their blood pressure and also are not at an increased risk of necrotizing pancreatitis is important. So fluid replacement is something that we hop on pretty quickly. There's no current consensus on the rate of fluid resuscitation. There was a trial that compared aggressive versus more conservative fluid resuscitation, but it was ended early due to increased rates of fluid overload in the aggressive resuscitation group. And remember that fluid overload is associated with things like pulmonary edema, abdominal compartment syndrome. So it's important to keep an eye on. And one way to titrate fluids but is by monitoring vitals, urine output. You can do point-of-care ultrasound IVC to estimate their volume status. And so I think there's no consensus, but the the sweet spot is in somewhere in between being really conservative and giving them pulmonary edema. So they need a lot of fluid, but keep an eye on the clinical situation. The next thing that you're going to want to think about is going to be pain control. Pancreatitis is extremely painful and IV opiates are recommended for management of pancreatitis if other things are not working. And this probably in our day and age is going to be managed by our anesthesia folks, but they are candidates for patient control 
uncontrolled anesthesia pumps or PCA pumps. And specific medications that have been used are like Dilaudid, fentanyl, morphine. And I read something about morphine recently that suggested that maybe it increases sphincter of OD pressure, but there's no data to show that it worsens pancreatitis. So there's some question of if morphine for pancreatitis should be replaced with meperidine, but a meperidine, which is also called Demerol, has the risk of neurotoxicity. So it's hard to tell which one of those is better. Probably, I'm not even gonna, I'm not even gonna make an assessment, but morphine has been used quite a lot, but there's some discussion of if it should continue to be used, although it has not been necessarily proven to worsen pancreatitis or cause any issues with the theoretical increase in sphincter of OD pressure. As with all medications in the opioid class, please be aware of respiratory depression, especially in patients who are pretty sick with pancreatitis. If you're treating their pain, definitely need to be keeping an eye on them because we don't want to cause more problems than they came in with. The third thing that you want to keep an eye on is going to be nutrition. So it is appropriate in patients with pancreatitis who are having a hard time tolerating their diet to be NPO, so nothing per oz or not eating anything by their mouth. If patients are unable to resume their diet due to symptoms after about five or seven days, you can do enteral feeding. And typically this is going to be NJ feeding, so nasal jejunal. So it's going to be past the duodenum so that you're not like aggravating the pancreas, which is where those symptoms are coming from. However, early feeding has been shown to be appropriate with no worsening of outcomes with feeding within the first 24 hours. If patients are tolerating a diet, they are able to eat. Um, But if feeding is not tolerated, they can remain NPO. Typically, you're going to prefer enteral nutrition over parenteral nutrition most of the time. Like in a lot of clinical scenarios, you are going to want to do enteral feeding, which is just what the body prefers versus putting a food source in the bloodstream, which is a risk of infection. But if patients are unable to tolerate even enteral feedings, you can supplement with parenteral until they are able to tolerate a diet. And that's something that you can consult with your nutrition team about. Something to note is that patients are at an increased risk for an extra pancreatic infection, so about a 20% risk of infection, but they should not be placed on prophylactic antibiotics. But this is just something to keep in mind when thinking about parenteral nutrition, placing lines, tubes, and drains, just introducing extra sources of infection into patients who already have a 20% risk of infection due to their condition. So that's where we're going to cut this off for now because we're at 33 minutes and we will come back next week and talk about the complications of acute pancreatitis. And there are some fun like surgical or procedural things to learn about complications of pancreatitis. And then we will maybe, maybe brush up on some chronic pancreatitis. Then the next episode, start talking about lesions of the pancreas, working our way to pancreatic adenocarcinoma and a Whipple. So that's what you have to look forward to in the next couple of weeks. I hope 
hope that this was helpful for you. Probably a lot of it was review, but it doesn't hurt to brush up on some knowledge. I will talk to you next week. Bye. That's it for today's podcast. You can support this podcast and receive exclusive educational content on Patreon and find us on Instagram at Sterile Field Guide. Questions and requests can be submitted to our Gmail at sterilefieldguide at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. And until next time, may your retraction be superb and your suture tails be the perfect length.